0: So moving on to what is my favorite part of the episode because I feel like it's the juiciest part of the episode. David, I want to hear your examples of companies being caught out by not being ESG compliant. I'm talking oil spills. I'm talking GDPR fines. What are some of your best examples?
1: Oh gosh, another long list. And again, you, you really <laughs> built that one up and it was absolutely right. This is a, uh, this is I, we could do an entire episode of me just listing things out. Very boring for the audience, but totally doable. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where do we begin? Um, all right, so this list is just a very growing list, and by the time I'm sure this, this episode is, is actually aired, this will be an outdated list for sure. But I think the biggest on the news that everyone knows is Shell. Um, you also have complaints being raised against BMW, Volkswagen, and Daimler in um, in Germany. You've got Exxon in the States. And then, of course, you've got DWS, which is sort of stateside plus Germany. Um, but one thing I also like to add into this mix is not just the litigation, which which we are know we, we know all the failures of, but also to bring in things like the OECD um, national contact points, which allow for complaints, which are a non-litigious process. Um, so I'm sorry, I'm getting really nerdy here, but it's a non-litigious process, <laughs> which allows you to raise a complaint in a certain jurisdiction um, based on on largely human rights and social issues, but it's a stack of its own, and so I'm going to use just very three examples, if I may, right? Like, I, like I said, we can we can create an annex to this episode where I just sit there and tell you a long, long list. Um, but for now, we're going to focus on three. So, big oil is that what you you demanded? Yeah, big oil. Let's go. We've got uh, Exxon. That's an interesting one. So that's that's in America. Exxon actually try to make a disclosure about their emissions, their their impact on the environment, and they were challenged in Texas and in New York in particular. They were acquitted in New York, and the reason they were challenged was because the people who read those disclosures thought they were actually untrue. Um, So the accuracy. So this goes back against the transparency, accuracy points. and it, it was basically, I mean, they've been acquitted in New York. That doesn't mean they've been acquitted in Texas yet. And these, these are sort of started a, a huge raft of issues as to what does compliance with ESG mean? Because like I said, you know, there's no global standards. We are still working through regional, often jurisdictional laws, guidance processes. We're looking at trends. But there isn't actually law on ESG, per se. Um, it's fragmented at, at best, where you have Sort of environmental rules every here, here and there, and in human rights pieces here and there. So that that's that's one at big oil, and I mean I'm not going to go into Shell because that's been publicized way too much. Um, the second one you've got is DWS, and this is a very interesting one because this is where you see employee activism, and that's something we haven't touched on yet. So this is a whistleblowing case um, where their head of sustainability, Desri Frixler, actually whistle blew on the company itself so she was just like look i can't be working for a company that actually is um, greenwashing for all intents and purposes as part of its disclosures and two major regulators got involved so you got Buffin in in germany and and the sec in the states um, and ultimately uh the whistleblowers was, was awarded 200 million million dollars i want to say dollars i'm gonna say dollars it might be euros dollars um, but that's a uh, not a shy award and i think that what it really does is it encourages employees to be open about and, and to challenge the companies which they work with as well.
2: I was going to tell you, you don't normally actually get um, benefited for actually doing the right thing these
0: days. So it's it's nice ah. to hear. God, well, that's go. massive. I think I'm in the wrong line of work. I think I need to get into whistleblowing as a career. <laughs> it's, it's very lucrative, it sounds.
1: We are definitely not telling all of my clients, I said, that that's how you make money, yeah. because that's a terrible <laughs> idea. Uh, but no, at the same time, yes. I. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I, I do think, like at the same time, you know, it is really important for companies to be doing the right thing, not just saying they're doing the right thing. It's not just a tick box exercise anymore. This is real impact on real people's lives. You know, we just touched on just transition. You do something wrong for the environment, for a society, that impacts people's lives, and it's it's really qu- quite possible just to do the right thing and still be profitable. If anything, the numbers that we're seeing in terms of returns from investments this year and the last year. Um, you're seeing a lot more returns via the ESG route than the non-ESG route, so there is there is a good argument to be made for you know do the right thing, be responsible.
0: I can see that it would be tempting not to though, because it it seems like so many of the, like the rules and regulations that we have in place have a lot of like wiggle room. So like w- one example that um I was looking at before this episode um is that like um. Lo- loads of um, big companies have said that they're not going to be financing fossil fuels, but financing—the yeah. definition of financing—doesn't extend to underwriting bond and, ecu- and equity issuances, of which sixty-five percent of them do. <laughs> so it, it seems yeah. like there's a lot of scope to kind of bend rules and go away with it.
1: Yep, absolutely. And and again, you know, it it goes to two things. One is that ultimately we don't have that that defined term so the the eu sustainability taxonomy is dropping in 1st of jan 2022 you've got the social taxonomy in draft right now you've got mandatory diligence requirements coming through as well once you have law and regulation that actually is standardized globally it becomes a lot easier to see what's actually going on and how you are measuring things so even simple things like the sfdr which was the sustainability financial what was it sfdr uh, it's a It's a funds. It's it's what lets you categorize your (laughs) funds as green and dark green. Too many acronyms. You lost me there. Um, But yeah, anyway, so it allows you to define under Article 6 sustainable funds. And then you have Article 8 and Article 9, which look at green and dark green. Um, And essentially, the measure of those um, isn't entirely clear and still remains its slight question. And I think that, that what's happening next is with the taxonomy coming in, we are starting to see a standardization on the use of terms. And that will probably really help us understand what we say when we, when we say things like financing, when we say things like investing. There's also the, the point is that there are existing relationships and contracts already in place. And as with any legal obligation, if you snap it, you're paying for it. So a lot of what we're hearing about is things that are now being wound down. But frankly speaking, if, even if we just go back to my previous point, which is what's actually earning the money, what's actually earning the money right now is looking to and increasingly at the green space. And so you know these obligations that have been written in, probably obligations that are going to make their way through a lot of boardrooms. They're probably going to find their way into the deal teams. They're going to find their way on the ground and actually be talking to the people on the ground and the states on the ground and figuring out how to make this work. But this is a much, much more challenging discussion to have when you bring in um jurisdictions outside of the New Yorks and the londons and the and the and the Germanys because that's where you start really seeing complex. And sophisticated issues that that aren't always just resolved with a with a single policy or a single statement. And actually, on that one, I'm going to be bold enough to say one more example, which is my NCP example. I love the national contact points. I just think they're, they're such a such a such a fun way of actually raising some very interesting challenges, which which don't always necessarily have the the full litigious um, backing, essentially. So one of them is a company called Energy, who they actually. Put up a wind farm. Wind farm, yeah, a wind farm in the Astoria region, um, which is home to the indigenous Sami people, and the Sami people's occupation is to herd reindeer. Now, uh, obviously, from a purely environmental perspective, it's great they put down a wind farm, right? Ten point ten out of ten. The problem was that having put down the the wind farm, the ability for the Sami people to continue to herd the reindeer was substantially impacted negatively. Obviously, in this case. And therefore, they basically lost what may have been their, one of their primary sources of income. Now, this is a, this is a challenge of where you see what happens when, when you talk about transition out and transition in. And transition in, in this case, was put down wind farms on the ground um, and generate electricity because we need it. But also, what happens now to the poor uh, Sámi people who have spent their lives building this as their, their occupation, and where do they turn to next, given the, the limited land, given the limited resources that they otherwise have available to them, and also, whose responsibility is it? So, I mean, those are the sort of challenges where you start seeing, you know, how do I just walk away from something like this, or how do I walk into something like this even? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's tough. That, as, a, as someone who's done human rights, that's tough.
0: Yeah,
2: I saw a bit of that in Canada when they were um, building the transmounting Pipeline, but obviously it went across a lot of Indigenous communities' um, land, and that's obviously brings that into a lot of, well, that was a gas line as well, but brings in a lot of issues that also, especially before I went to Canada, was something that I didn't really fully understand as much, because obviously we're not as open, and um, we're not as educated in Indigenous communities as we should be, because it's something that doesn't necessarily, isn't at the forefront of people in the UK's mind. So it was really interesting. I think it's something that definitely internationally will have a massive effect. So just, um, a li- I guess, uh, listeners, we'd love to hear a bit more about, I guess, how law firms are being pressured by clients to change internally.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so essentially, we've, you know, one of the things that most clients will ask us straight up is, um. What is your what is your what is your policy on responsible business or sustainable business? How are you going to frame it? So at Clifford Chance we divided into ESG and we've also which is our ESG board, we've also got a sustainable and responsible sorry a responsible business board, which is separate. that looks at our internal um, doings and dealings. So we've actually got a uh, consultant, so that's Ecovardis who we are rated with. All of our procurement and supply chains are, are looked at by Ecovadis for us, and we maintain a report card, so to speak, which we then provide to our clients. Um, Clifford Chance, of course, it's as a as a good leader in the space because we are not only rated amongst the highest, well, as one of the highest law firms in the world, but we're also rated uh, ahead of a number of our clients as well. Um, and that's that makes it quite easy to tell this story, frankly. Um, our clients. Um, are actually what drive some of us and you know think of thinking of it as a personal relationship with some of these clients they want to be close to advisors who actually are walking the talk Um, they want to know that they can trust the advice they're receiving especially when it comes to esg risk and esg uh, opportunities and so you know this is important for us too we were also one of the first firms frankly to, to publish on the, the pay gaps, for example, you know we accept where we need to improve and we are ready to, to take on those challenges and we've been showing improvement ever since we published. So again, it's 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 a, I, I see it as a pressure on law firms. Yes, there's a pressure on us, um, potentially not. I think we're actually quite happy with, with this encouragement from our clients to say, yeah, you know what, keep going, keep making things better and keep doing it and tell us how we should do it for ourselves as well. So I quite like that. I mean, if I can sort of, you know, turn to one one document that's been published recently, which is our code of conduct that's been published by Clifford Chance, but also endorsed by our senior partner, Jeroen Awahand. I mean, I really want all the listeners to go in and there and, and see what governance is at Clifford Johnson and what we look at. It's just a really short but really impactful document. It's got five points and it really does look to how we treat our people internally, but also how we make our decisions. And on the back of that, we've now got a new environmental policy um, that also allows us to sort of consider our our position and, and our role within the ESG ecosystem and and how we fit into that in, and what our responsibilities are within that. Um, I think, it, I, I mean, I'm not ever going to speak ill of any other firms out there. I, I would I would definitely, however, praise the leadership that that CC's show, shown in this space. And you know, I think Clifford Johns really is leading from the front here. So. Maybe I'm biased, maybe. But also I, I do think looking at it even objectively I, I can say that, you know, we've got the we've got the, the paperwork to prove um, that we've done a we've done a pretty thorough job and we're only working to make it better and better and better. And I can keep saying better until this this podcast ends.
0: Thank you so much to David for coming onto the podcast. It is so exciting to speak to someone so closely involved in this area. ESG is becoming a practice area in its own right. And many firms now have panels and teams dedicated to this. Companies can't ignore that beyond there being a moral obligation and external pressure, there are also increasing legal obligations and compliance risks. As David said, governance is the wrapper that holds this all together. We need corporate governance, transparency to be able to see how decisions are being made and hold boards accountable. But there are also social and environmental conflicts as, on an international scale, policy cannot be one size fits all. We hope you enjoyed this episode and please like, subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Virtually Legal Podcast for more.